July 2016. British journalist Max Spears, 39, becomes ill and dies while staying with a friend in Warsaw, Poland. Max's obsession with conspiracy theories has given way to endless conspiracy theories of their own in relation to his death. Was Max's death due to natural causes or were sinister forces trying to silence Max for good? Primary sources for this episode include the BBC, BBC Stories, The Guardian, Kent Online and The Standard. The creation of this reality begins at the young age. So all the textbooks um, and all the history books are, are then written and, and, and so, that when, so that we all collectively believe this particular thing. So then we all, when we all believe it, we all ma- ma- manifest a reality that's based on these books. Yes. Uh, that's very stinky and a very clever way to yeah. do it because how do I know, how do we know the textbooks are... Um, they're not the 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 wars are written by the winners Mm. aren't they and so the winners write whatever they want to write in there Mm. and then then we just believe it we take it on board so we so we start we start learning that numbers and letters are they only give us a very simple version of what numbers and letters are and there's so much more to what numbers and letters are uh, even phonetically, um, uh, how 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 words sounds, how you say it when you speak, how it sounds to a person is going to affect them. It's not just a word. You know, I think I wrote the other day. You know, and I think you know, people know this, but um, you know, you spell a word because it's words spell. are spells. Yes. You say a sentence to somebody. You're you're literally saying a spell. And words are, you know, that that old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words and names will never hurt me, is is, is not true. Yes. Yeah, because words are very, very powerful. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 114 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. And that interview was a section of an interview with today's subject for episode 114, No date on that, but I would presume probably around 2013, 2014. But before we get into this week's episode, I didn't really take like a full week off like I was going to. I will at some point, um, probably for like since I started this in April 2020, I've never really missed a week, even when I was in hospital um, this year. So if I do, you know, I'll be back. But I won't be doing like as many episodes, like second episodes each week because um, I'm just not feeling the best at the moment. But before we get into this week's episode, I've got a few things to go through. So first off, welcome new patron, Kristen. Thank you so much for coming on board and for becoming a patron. Secondly, um, after the Marion Carver episode, the last episode I did, um, someone called Morgan emailed me a really nice email. I tried to reply and it bounced back because your email is full. So I thought that I would say that on this episode. I've tried a couple of times and same thing, bounces back. So empty your email. (laughs) I got a ton of feedback on Marion's episode, which was episode 113. 
Every single person said that they believe it was almost definitely a planned, you know, suicide. I had one particular listener who reached out who actually has bipolar disorder who almost immediately when she was listening said that sounds like action she's taken before, including um, last minute trips with no belongings and that none of that sounded out of the ordinary for this particular person um, and that maybe those were traits that um, you know Marion had or maybe a illness Marion had so um, thank you for giving you know a little bit about you um, in regards to Marion Carver. Um, a few things in the news about different cases that we've covered first off the CIA plotted to assassinate Julian Assange that has been reported Unfortunately, everyone just ignored it, which is the case with journalists these days. Maybe the most relevant journalist at the moment, and I never thought I'd say this, Russell Brand is probably the only person who has covered it. Um, so bookmark that in relation to the multi-parter we did on Julian Assange last year. Secondly, Sarah Everard's killer um, has been sent to prison for life. There is only a handful of people in Britain who have never to be released marked on their file, and that monster is now one of them. So... Um, I don't feel for him at all. I feel for Sarah's family and I feel for his children um, growing up with everyone knowing that that's their father and that's what he did. Um, but kudos to the justice system for actually doing your job for a change. Um, thank you to Jamie Kay, a listener who sent me some news. It's hard for me to keep up with every case I've done. I usually catch them, but some I don't. At the start of October, it was reported that the star witness, as they call them, in regards to the Michaela Macarevi murder, she was the young honeymooner um, who was in Mauritius on her honeymoon when she was murdered in her hotel room, still, quote unquote, unsolved. Um, the star witness was the one who witnessed who he says were the people who did it and heard Michaela screaming. Now, that star witness has... Burn, 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 killed himself, um, whether or not that's a conspiracy theory to throw a term around that we'll be using on this episode, um, or if he had other things on his mind, who knows. Um, but that's very interesting and hopefully not something that will jeopardise if this goes to trial again, which unfortunately I just don't think that it will. Um, I probably plan at some point after I have my thyroid removed on doing Patreon-only episodes at the moment, my voice just isn't up to talking more than, you know, one episode at a time this week. It's just getting worse and worse. Um, but that would be a reason for you to join Patreon. So it links through the website, unknownpassagepodcast.com, um, or you can just search Unknown Passage on the Patreon app. Now, let's get into this week's episode because it's a bit of a confusing one and will require a few sound bites and things like that. So this is a Patreon location request for the next person on the list, which is Patron Eva. That is how it's pronounced. It's E-W-A. Eva is originally from Poland, which is where we're going for this episode today. Eva now lives in North Carolina with her family, but she was raised under communist, you know, the communist regime in Poland back in the day, which is something that we'll be talking about when we talk about Poland, um, because that's where we're going. Albeit, I did kind of notice when I was researching this, Max Spears case, the place where it happens probably matters the least in this particular case. Um, but still, I've been to Poland. I love Poland. So we're definitely going to be talking about that. But I asked Eva if I could read her message to me when she chose Poland and why. Um, and she said, that's fine. Um, read whatever, including about her business, because 
I want to read out her business details in case it interests you because I want to support small business at the moment. Um, so I'm going to read this to you from Eva. Quote, 33 years ago, my family escaped communist Poland and settled in Chicago. The story is long and full of ups and downs as any illegal immigrant tale. Just thinking about it makes me want to cry. We didn't speak any English. We cleaned offices at night and took care of babies during the day. Everything was scary and new. Nothing was exciting. It was all super frightening. I learned English from watching Sesame Street and the 1988 Jesse Jackson presidential campaign. I was amazed that grapes did not have seeds and that stores were so color were full of such colorful food. But when I saved the money to buy it, it often tasted disgusting. Neon jello in a mold. Yuck. Things got better slowly. After five years, we won a green card in the lottery. I could attend a university and not worry about getting married for papers. Fast forward 33 years and here we are running an amazing little company and trying to keep our own warehouse tidy. I still believe that this story is only possible in America. And I also asked her if I could read um, what her business was. So she said that's good. Um, so it is... Quote, we run a super awesome fabric upcycling business where we collect leftover fabrics from furniture manufacturers and sell them back to the public at a huge discount. Here is a link plus a video if you're interested. We save 150,000 plus yards of fabric from the landfill each year, which is awesome ever. And if you're interested, her website is www.modern-fabrics.com slash about slash. One of my first um, jobs when I was about 15 with a friend of mine, her mum actually owned or managed a fabric store and we used to cut remnants and staple them to pieces of paper for some reason. That was our job um, and it was very <laughs> monotonous and laborious but we got to play music. So thank you for telling me all that ever. I often, when I introduce myself on Patreon to people and ask what their choice is, I often get really interesting life stories where people have lived, you know, why they've moved, what their parents did for a living and why they travelled all over the world when they were growing up. And that was one of the ones that, you know, really ties back to what I'm going to say in this episode. So someone requested Poland as a location last year when the podcast was quite new and I did not have one on my list then. Then flash forward to now and I have like four on my list. Um, I think it could have been patron Melissa who requested it. I'm not sure, but I know I did hungry for her. So maybe not. So a few months ago, I was listening to the podcast, The Shocking Details, which is hosted by Joe, who used to host or be one of the hosts of Thinking Sideways. And him and Vincent did an episode on Max Spears. I haven't re-listened to it. I just kind of put his name down in my spreadsheet and went about my business and then ever requested Poland, and I immediately thought of Max again. I had never heard of him until they covered him on the shocking details, so I added him to my list. And at first, when I started kind of listening to their episode on it a few months ago when it came out, I thought it was some sort of weird hoax story that hadn't happened, like that kid in South America who had a room full of religious symbols and then vanished, and that turned out to be a hoax. <laughs> but in fact, Max Spears did exist and his life did exist and his death happened. In this episode, I won't be talking in depth when I talk about Poland in regards to Poland under the Holocaust. It is one of my kind of niche areas of expertise probably for the last 25 years of my life. 
um, to the point where I traveled to Poland for that very reason. But I have chosen a particular episode that I'll be doing in a few months that will go over kind of all of that um, because I have an episode planned for around January or so that will go into great depth about Poland during World War II, but I'll kind of touch on it during this episode for Max Spears. So Max Spears was British. He was English, actually. Um, he died in 2016 under very mysterious circumstances while he was in the capital city of Poland, Warsaw. I played a clip of Max speaking at the start of this episode, and there are many interviews and speeches that you can watch of Max on YouTube. All you have to do is look it up. Hours and hours and hours from people who really looked up to him. But unfortunately, when someone puts a Nazi swastika as the thumbnail picture on YouTube, um, it will put me off watching what you have to say on Max Spears. Um, I will include some of him speaking throughout this. They're just random things that he's saying. I'm not trying to stitch anything together or prove a point by what I'm having him say. They're just merely Max's words that stood out to me. <clears throat> Max is almost always in headlines referred to as a conspiracy theorist. Conspiracy theorist Max Spears, which is why in this introduction at the start, I decided to call him a journalist um, because I am going to try to avoid the term conspiracy theorist. Um, I'm kind of sick of hearing that in this day and age about everything. Um, the first use of conspiracy theorist was orchestrated by the CIA um, to call people that when they questioned what had happened with John F. Kennedy. Um, these days, it's really just a way to discredit someone without listening to what they're having to say. Um, and it's really just a throwaway line. Um, when people ask questions about certain things, you get called that. So I'm going to try to avoid that. Although the term conspiracy theorist, like... A conspiracy is basically like a plot between one or more people um, and theorist, you know, is someone who theorizes about what could have happened during a conspiracy. So it really shouldn't be a line that is used to discredit people, but it is. Um, that being said, hold on to the end because it's not like I don't have really strong opinions on Max Spears's case. So BBC Stories had a four-part YouTube series, on, which is still available on YouTube. It is called Fractured, the Max Spears story, I believe. I did watch it all through. Before watching it, I figured it would be a hit piece because it is the BBC. And I was not at all surprised by the fact that it turned out to be a hit piece. But there were some things that I got from it that I found were interesting um, but if they're going to hire a journalist to cover something and pay for them to travel first class British Airways, probably to Poland to cover the really tragic story of a dead man, maybe she should wipe the smile and smirk off her face. Shout out to my Polish listeners, um, because that's actually where I have the most consistent listenership, which is awesome. Um, you guys are awesome. I've been there. So, Jean Dobre. As usual, any personal views presented, I should say this really fast, like they do on ads, any personal views presented on this episode of Unknown Passage are purely my own speculation and opinion. I'm entitled to that as you are to yours. Let's go on. Max Spears 
as he would most commonly be called, um, was born in the city of Canterbury, which lies in the county of Kent, um, which is kind of one of the southern counties of England, down near where you catch the ferry across to Calais, France. He was actually born Maxwell Bates Spears on December 22nd, 1976, which is a very dignified name. He was 39 at the time um, that he died, just a few months short of turning 40. He died on July 16th, 2016 at the age of 39 in what are somewhat bizarre circumstances um, to most people. While he was staying with a friend in the city of Warsaw, which is the capital of the country of Poland, I think because Max spent a large portion of his adult life as what they refer to as a quote-unquote high-profile conspiracy theorist, when he died, people automatically tagged his death as a murder um, or something like that. Um, but I will get into that later. In terms of solved or unsolved, this case is technically solved by all accounts. Um this made it hard for me to write these notes because it's really hard to bury the lead on what happened with Max Spears, but I will go on. It's quite hard to get a lot of early info on Max, what he did when he was a child, things like that. There's certain gaps in his story that I would that seem quite obvious that I just couldn't find the answers to. What I do know is probably the most vocal supporter of Max was his mum, Vanessa, who is still alive, Vanessa Bates. His dad was Jonathan Spears, hence the double-barreled surname Bates Spears, but he just went by Bates, which was his sur mum's surname. You can tell how much his mum loved her son, you know, he's always your little boy, even though he was 39 when he died, and you can really tell how much the lead-up to his death and his death affected her and continues to in interviews. They came from Canterbury, as I said, probably most famous for... Um, the Canterbury Tales by William Shakespeare. Max was a good-looking bloke. He just looks like a guy, a British guy. I really can't explain it. Um, he's quite a good-looking guy. Now, one of the main clickbaity headline things that BBC and The Guardian and The Independent and things like that use is that it's often Max Spears, um, ex-schoolmate of Orlando Bloom. And that's true, but that's all there is to it. <laughs> he went to school at one point with Orlando Bloom. I don't even know if it was primary school or high school, but then again, hundreds of people probably went to school at some point with Orlando Bloom. But I think that's their little tagline to like draw people in. Um, they make it look like they were best friends or something. And I honestly don't know if he even would have ever talked to him. He was very close to his brother, Josh, who was interviewed on the BBC Stories piece. Josh says on the BBC Stories piece that he really looked up to how Max never apologised for who he was, which is, for me, a really admirable quality as well. From a young age, Max Spears was obsessed with aliens and UFOs. He wrote about them from the time he was a little boy, but as he got older, his obsession with all things paranormal and quote-unquote conspiracy only grew. The following interview piece that I'm going to play for you is dated two months before Max died, um, around May of 2016. I just have memories of, um, I have memories of uh, going to Mars, yeah. Okay, so what do you remember? Well, see, I don't remember it like that. Okay, I have two different specific memories. Um, okay, the first one um, involves me 
being in what was like a hotel room with a red carpet and believe it or not um, uh, the the current president of the United States was sitting cross-legged on a carpet facing a fire facing a fire okay fireplace and I went up to him and um, we started speaking to each other and I called him sir and I have no idea why. I just, it was, I instinctively called him sir. He told me then, uh, follow the stairs up to the top and go through the red door. When you go through the red door, there's a, a military commander at the other end of the room. And so I followed him. He was very, he was very cordial and very nice to me. Um, I followed through into the room, um, met up with this man with insignias, military insignia on there. He wasn't so nice, he had a big grin on his face. And then um, uh, there was another, a lot of doorways, another doorway, a red doorway. I go through the red doorway and then black out, okay? The next thing I know, I'm in um, a, a, a military base. Um, I can tell I'm in a military base because there's lots of people around with um, um, military garb insignia around, around me. I could well have not been, but I'm going by my perception. Um, and uh, that was what I am assuming to be a jump room. So when I open the door, um, flash, amnesia, no memory, then all of a sudden I'm there. This is the first one. The second, the second time, um, I was in some form of ship. Um, I was definitely a ship, <clears throat> and I was in uh, out of the atmosphere, and um, I was moving very, very, very high, high pace. And then there was a screen to the right of me, and it said on the screen, "One minute to Mars, fifty seconds to Mars, forty seconds to Mars." 30 seconds to Mars, 20 seconds to Mars, 10 seconds to Mars, and flash, bright flash like that, and then I'm back in the same place again. So two different ways. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because that was, and this was in 2008, okay? Not too long after that, um, a band, uh, a musical band came out that is called 30 Seconds to Mars. And I remember distinctly seeing on this thing, it kept doing the countdown and it said 30 seconds to Mars on it. So I'm not going to comment right now on how Max talks or what he's talking about. I will say that I have known many people throughout my life where I've had conversations or people have talked at me like that, um, but we'll get more into it. So Max was a journalist, but I guess he was a journalist in the same sense as Julian Assange was a journalist. The definition of a journalist is really just someone who disseminates news. Um, I see a lot of people online when people ask questions about everyday things, people write back, are you a journalist? You're not a journalist. Um, there is no qualification. In fact, I have the degree for journalism. Um, my dad, who was a journalist for 50 years, um, never had a degree. You don't need a piece of paper in a frame um, to say that you can do something, um, hence the rise of citizen journalism today, which is something that we need. And I think we can all agree on that. Um, the later inquest in the UK after Max's death heard that he, quote, was described as a journalist dealing with the topics of conspiracy theories and par paranormal phenomena, unquote. So 
in short, you can go and look up what Max was into. Um, he kind of believed in a lot of stuff that's thrown around today. It's often a lot of very similar stuff because I'm very open-minded. I rank very high on an openness ranking system, apparently. I'll listen to anyone. I'll read anything. Um, I don't just go, um, no, turn it off because I don't want to hear it or I don't believe it. I'm pretty open to a lot of concepts. Um, he believed in basically the NWO, the New World Order. Maybe in 2016 when Max died, I would have laughed at that. But I think we can all agree there's a lot of dodgy stuff going on. Um across all fields across the world for quite a long time. Um, so who knows? But Max was close friends with a quite an older guy called Miles. They met through something in the UK, some conference. That's how it seems that Max met quite, you know, a lot of his contacts from what I can find. Um, so here's an interview with him from the BBC Stories piece. And then it kind of segues into Max talking a little bit as well. Um, Miles is the older guy. Um, I'm just going to play that for you first. These are living. They are living. They're, yeah, they're trees. Yeah, they're the trees. Yeah. They're thorn bushes. I had an experience where they switched me into a different domain. This is Miles. He calls himself a transhumanization researcher. He knew Max for many years. And invited Max to speak at conferences. Max talked about super soldiers, he talked about deep underground bases, he talked about Nightmare Hole, where they'd be making all these types of creatures in the labs, in Dulce and in this country. The creation of a interdimensional or astral war or army. The majority of the moon is now run by the uh, Fourth Reich. He was also explaining that we have got, we are governed by others, the unseen. Is this what you would call the New World Order? The New World Order is a sort of a modern version of that. What did Max think happened to him when he was a child? Max was, was uh, part of a group of children, about 40 children, who were treated in very special ways. OK, here Miles is talking about the super soldier programme that Max thought he was part of. Max believed that his mind had been altered as a fetus and could be controlled to fight in other dimensions but they were being trained to survive an enemy that they needed to be able to conquer, and that's what he was fighting. That's quite a big thing to believe that happened to you when you were a child. You see, you keep on saying this belief system. If you're actually in a program and you're actually with other children, exposed to different military conditions by other elements who are in control, um, then that's not a belief system. That's happened to you in your life. I was targeted as an individual from birth. With me, the trauma began whilst in the womb. There are a number of different ways to traumatize, to uh, split the mind of the child so that it creates alters, like a, maybe like a honeycomb. The reason behind fracturing the mind is so that when the mind is fractured through trauma, the mind fractures itself and creates an amnesiac barrier around that so, uh, so that you don't have to keep reliving the experience over and over again. I feel like this would be right up patron Marissa's alley, who's very into neuroscience and things like that. Um, certain things that Max talks about are, in fact, things that are talked about throughout the psychological community. Um, terms of like in terms of fracturing, they often use that in regards to borderline personality disorder, um, black and white thinking. I know all this because I've had psychiatry in the past. Um, so <clears throat> Max also believed that he had a lot of out of body experiences that started from the time he was 
I think five, and he regularly wrote about them. And there's clips of it in the BBC Stories piece that has a child reading Max's stuff from the time he was a child. It was very vivid for Max, um, almost like to me he was lucid dreaming. He believed that he was supernatural and that because of his skills in the realm of supernatural behaviour that people were after him, which from things that I've read, this seems to be a very common thread um, amongst people who say that they're being followed and that they have these um, these abilities. Um, a lot of it revolves around Hollywood, the Illuminati, um, child pedophilia, um, presidents being pedophiles, things like that. Um, <clears throat> note that I'm not laughing like a lot of people who would cover this because I give people the benefit of the doubt. He believed that he had been altered as a child to become what's referred to as a super soldier. So according to the internet, quote, a super soldier or super soldier, so it can be spelt the two words together or separate, is a fictional concept soldier often capable of operating beyond normal human limits or abilities, either through genetic modification or cybernetic augmentation, unquote. <clears throat> My immediate thought when I saw pictures or depictions of what a super soldier is, um, I thought of um, Terminator 2 and Skynet. So, as an adult, Max had become quite a niche name in the world of quote-unquote conspiracy theorists. I had never heard of him because I'm not kind of in that world and I don't watch those kinds of things on YouTube. But looking back, he was interviewed by a lot of people. One of the questions that I have is how Max made his money that I just can't find. I have to presume he was paid to be a public speaker but how long had he been doing that and how had he been making his money because he was almost 40 um, at the time? I know it doesn't matter, but he had two children. Um, I have no idea who the mother was. She's never referenced. And I'm just wondering how he paid for them and things like that. On one particular trip to the USA, which I presume was to speak at one of these things, Max fractured his pelvis or cracked it or something. This is very painful. Um, he was prescribed because back in the day... It's a lot more regulated now, but we have a massive pandemic of um, opiate abuse across the world, in case you hadn't noticed. Um, he was given this because they very freely just give this to people who come in with injuries or pain. He was prescribed OxyContin. Um, and as a result of that, he got hooked on opiates, according to his mum. Now, <clears throat> my belief, personal belief, is that he had issues before that. Um, <clears throat> according to Miles, he drank a shitload. Um, he dealt with addictions in the past. Um, he ultimately ended up on crack cocaine, heroin, um, everything kind of that's these prescription pills were basically a gateway for him to these different drugs. And we've talked about drugs at length on this, my personal experiences with family members who are drug addicts, um, from the time I was, you know, a teenager having to deal with it. So I'm very across this and, Watching Max speak um, brought back so many memories for me. Um, I, I can't explain it. Maybe as we get into it and I feel like it, I may. So Max had two children, two little boys. I don't know their names. Little is written about them, how he supported them, and I have no idea who their mother was. I've tried to find this information. I don't know if they had the same mother. This was a long-term thing. Why they broke up, I have no idea. The BBC stories thing doesn't even touch on it. 
In terms of Max's personal life, it is often hard to make heads or tails of what was happening at the time that he died. When you Google Max, he's often seen in pictures with a girl that's misrepresented as Monica, who will come into play shortly. But this is actually, um, so the caption often reads Monica, but it's not. So Monica is an older woman with blonde hair. Um, There's pictures of her out there. There's a dark-haired girl who's younger, who's very attractive. She's actually a girl called Sarah, who had been in a long relationship with Max Around the time that he died, she did interviews and she was referred to by the standard as his fiance. According to his mum, however, on some YouTube channel where his mum recorded a message for them, his mum Vanessa, she basically said that they were over by the time he was in Poland. So take that, you know, with a grain of salt. I don't know if it really matters, to be honest. So in October 2016, just a few months after Max died, Sarah told the standard, quote, We were used to getting death threats or stuff like that from people, but I think this time it seemed rather real. He was going to expose black magic. He was going to expose some of the stuff that he was working on involving political leaders and celebrities, unquote. So his mum, Vanessa, who I think was very in tune with who her son was and had always been, said that Max suffered from very high levels of anxiety Um, which is something that I understand and can sympathise with. And at some stage in his life, his mind had turned to dark thoughts. She told the BBC stories that he would often need when his anxiety and tension was really out of control. He would need someone to sit with him um, and hold his hand and stay in the same room for hours because he didn't want to be left alone. Whether or not he was going to do something or he was just fearful, I kind of get the sense more that he was just needed that comfort of another person there. Some people, when they're very anxious, push people away, like myself. Um, Some people need them around them. Videos and interviews right before Max's death indicate that he obviously had an issue with drugs and alcohol. There's no denying it. Um, His mum said it was starting to get out of control. She said that she had seen him like this on numerous occasions and from watching the interview, she knew the um, evidence that he was back on stuff. Um, And that's what I was saying about watching his interviews. It almost gave me like hot and cold bad feelings across my body, Um, just memories of people that I've known, um, immediate family members, seeing them like that. Um, it, it's very frustrating. Um, that's one of the one of the emotions um, that I have felt about it. So let's talk about a woman called Monica. So Max, about three months before he died, so around April 2016, he met a woman called Monica Duval, I think is how you say it. That's how they say it on BBC. Um, at an, what's referred to as an environmental conference. I don't know what that entails, but maybe Max' environmental themes also may be in line with what he was interested in. He met her three months before he died, and her job is listed in most publications as a quote-unquote sci-fi publisher. So that's probably how she crossed paths with him. Now, Monica and Max had been to Cyprus for a trip. Cyprus being near Greece and Turkey, Um, I don't know what they were doing down there. No one says. Were they on a holiday? I can't find any pictures of it or anything like that. But when they had returned, basically they returned to Warsaw, Poland, which is where Monica lived. She's Polish. 
she, according to all publications, had a really nice big place. Um, the BBC at one point in BBC stories tries to track her down and can't get hold of her. And that's generally the same theme across all publications. So they had been in Cyprus for a trip um, and apparently Max had asked Monica, I don't know if you have to be I don't know if you have to be a resident of one of the Schengen countries or something like this to be able to get hold of it, but he had asked her to buy um, a, quote, surgery's entire stock of Xanax during a trip to Cyprus, unquote. So he'd asked her to go to a doctor and get every all of the Xanax they could give her. And you don't need a prescription to get Xanax in Cyprus, which to me is crazy, so if you don't know what Xanax is or what it does, according to drugs.com, quote, Xanax or alprazolam, I'm really bad with those, is a benzodiazepine. It is thought that alprazolam works by enhancing the activity of certain neurotransmitters in the brain. Xanax is used to treat anxiety disorders and anxiety caused by depression. Xanax is also used to treat panic disorders with or without a fear of places and situations that might cause panic, helplessness or embarrassment, agoraphobia. Fatal side effects may occur if you take Xanax with alcohol, opioid medication or other drugs that cause drowsiness or slow your breathing. Xanax is usually taken for no longer than four months to treat anxiety disorder and for no longer than 10 weeks to treat panic disorder, unquote. So, Monica went in there um, to the doctors. As I said, you do not require a prescription in Cyprus, so she was doing nothing wrong. Um, in order to get Xanax, she bought 10 boxes of it, which is about 315 Great British Pounds worth, probably around 500 or just short of 500 US dollars worth of the drug. They then returned it back to Warsaw where Monica lived and Max stayed with her for a while. Max loved Warsaw. There's a little bit said about it in the BBC stories, but Warsaw is kind of like a secondary figure in this story, which I said before. It's probably the first case where the place really doesn't matter that much, but because I love Poland so much, I'm going to talk about it. It's very modern and progressive and free thinking for a place that just 30 years ago or so, just over 30 years ago, was a communist country. Um, and this is despite being what is referred to as Europe's most religious country, which is Poland. So the Polish prosecutor that BBC Story spoke to in 2017 in regards to Max Spears' death and the ongoing investigation, he says in the BBC Story's clip that he believes that there was some sort of romantic relationship there with Monica, um, but his mum, Vanessa, says that there wasn't and that Monica got the wrong idea and that she was pressuring Max to be together. She really wanted to be with him. Meanwhile, there's this Sarah back in the UK and I don't know what's happening with them. Um, it's all very up in the air. So here they were in Warsaw and Max travelled back there to speak to a conference for like-minded people. Now, later the BBC stories piece would try to gain access to one of these conferences where people speak about these kinds of things they denied her access and she acted like she was shocked. Um, maybe they got the feeling that she was just going to lie about their motivations and what they believe and things like this. So then Max was interviewed four days before he died by a Polish interviewer who, despite the way that this interview went, he would continue to upload it to YouTube. Now, 
I can only find it in regards to it playing in the BBC Stories piece. Max is not in a good way in this interview. He can barely get his words out. Um, he's clearly on the nod, as the term goes. Halfway through, he falls asleep, so he goes and jumps on a trampoline outside for a while, and then he comes back and he is worse. It's really bad, and according to the BBC stories, the interviewer, well, she's watching it on YouTube, so the interviewer released it, and he released it three days after Max died. So people suck, and there's no... <laughs> Um, there's no personal loyalty to anyone anymore. Um, but I'm going to play you the BBC Stories clip of them watching and translating this particular, you know, Polish interview where Max is not in a good way just four days before he died. Recorded apparently four days before Max died in Poland. The interviewer is a man called Alex Berdowicz. He knew Max and also Monica very well. Hi, today we are with Max Pierce again and we are recording only the voice because we don't have a good place to record the camera. This appears to be the last interview ever recorded with Max. I think it's important, not because of what Max says, but how he says it. First, first, first that's a last letter O, so we have Alpha to the Omega. Yes. So we have um, a, a controlling... We have a full controlling system by, oh, I just felt a, like a surge of uh, positive energy um, helping me out there when I said that A, A to the O. Yeah, it sounds really high. It sounds like he has a kind of like dry mouth yeah. as well. Like, yeah, like tacky. Mm. And his thoughts in general seem really confused. This is an hour and 16 minutes long. You look like being attacked now. I feel like this part here is, is almost being like something's going like this to my throat. To, to a head in my head. You, you can hear this? Heard it. You heard it? Yeah, those words. It's like a woman's voice going, hmm, in the background. Okay, there's another sign that says, after about 30 minutes, Max almost fell asleep. So we decided to take a break, let him jump on the trampoline to refresh for a few minutes and start the interview from the beginning. We recorded his jumping. We have kind of a removal of your, of your consciousness for some time. You felt bad, but now you are back. Yeah? Yes. So what did you feel? What happened? Please explain. Um... I think I disassociated, and then um, basically that's, that's what happened. So, uh, the first topic, uh, let's I'm talk quite about it. So, um, yeah. just letting you know. He was in such a dreadful state, oh, we can't film this guy. But you can hear him, you can hear him, you know, his throat failing and gurgling, and it's horrendous. So, at the end of that, <clears throat> when the interviewer thanks him for the interview, he, um, he can't even say goodbye. Um, now, that takes me back, if you've listened to most of the episodes of this podcast, to Heath Ledger and some of his later interviews. Um, and I think he and Max had quite a lot in common. Now, as I said, despite the fact that that's a raging train wreck um, of an interview and is terrible, looks terrible for Max, and he's clearly not giving his consent to the interview. The interviewer released it. I cannot find it. It's apparently still on his YouTube. Um, he released it three days after Max died, and I consider that probably 
the guy trying to cash in on the death of someone he literally just interviewed. Um, people suck. So let's talk a little bit about Poland. I say a little bit and then two hours later I finish talking about them. So Poland is referred to as the Republic of Poland. It's a central European country that I have been lucky enough to visit about 10 years ago. I went to one city, Krakow, um, but I actually have a plan. Like when I went there, I, I decided I'm going to come back and do like a whole month just traveling through Poland um, for a number of reasons. So the country has a population of around 38 million and Warsaw, the city where Max Spears died, is the capital of Poland. Other major cities in Poland include Krakow or Krakow, um, Poznan, Gdansk. I don't know how to say it. It's L-O-D-Z, but it's got all lines through it. Now, I know that's where it's quite an industrial city. <clears throat> um, I think it's pronounced like Wodz or something like that because they don't pronounce the L's there. <laughs> so people from Poland are referred to as Poles. And since it was behind the Iron Curtain, till 1989 along with a lot of other places it is still a very much a new country to tourists I remember when I went about 10 years ago and my parents were like oh can you travel to Poland now because when they went um, you didn't go to these parts of Europe you kind of just traveled around them even though I only visited um, Krakow I still found that it's very obvious um, when I went in 2010 that Poland was still a very new country um, in regards to it just coming out from behind the Iron Curtain 20 years before. Um, I found that Poland and Hungary in particular were two of the places I went to where not many people spoke English, um, which is generally a sign that it's quite westernised. Um, I found it quite hard to ask for directions and things like that and to get around. And because the language is quite difficult. Um, I found it difficult to read my little phrase book in the back of my Rough Guide to Europe book that I took everywhere. Um, it's quite a large country if you look at it on a map and compare it to its neighbours like the Czech Republic or Slovakia or even Austria. It's the ninth largest country in Europe. Poland is also considered the most religious country in Europe and 90% of its population identify as Christian. Its history goes back thousands of years and I really loved in Poland learning about, especially in Krakow, King Krak, slaying the dragon. Yes, his name was King Krak. Krakow. Krakow. However, times are changing and many of its cities are now um, kind of hotspots for young people there. A lot of them are university cities, including Krakow, with a young and diverse population. Polska, as it's referred to in Poland the place Poland, is perhaps now most visited for Krakow um, and particular for tourists to visit Auschwitz, um, which I did go to when I went to Krakow. But now tourists are discovering more of Poland. As I said, I have a whole month long trip that I'd love to do through Poland one day. <clears throat> when I went, um, the Euro, it was very good value for money um, going to Poland. Your money got very far um, on the Australian dollar, but who knows if I'll ever get back there. In 1939, Poland was notoriously invaded by the Nazis, which kicked off the start of World War II. Poland during the Holocaust is one of my niche areas of interest and always has been. And one of the main reasons I went to Krakow, as I said, um, was to visit Auschwitz. And one of the reasons that I want to go back to travel around um, Poland is to go to the various other concentration and extermination camps that you can 
go to. In an upcoming episode, as I said, I plan to do a whole story where I go into depth on all of it. In short, the Jewish population of Poland was one of Europe's largest, and as depicted in movies like Schindler's List and my second favourite movie of all time, The Pianist, the Jewish population was forced to relocate to ghettos. The Warsaw Ghetto is depicted in The Pianist, um, and that was the largest in Poland. 400,000 Jews in Warsaw were confined to an area that was now their ghetto that they had to live in that was just a little bit larger than one square mile, 400,000 Jews within one square mile. Poland during World War II had a large number of notorious concentration and extermination camps. Auschwitz-Birkenau is definitely the most famous. It's a very sobering experience going there. In particular, when I went there, it was December and it was freezing. As an Australian, I'd never felt anything like it. And it really hit home. I have a lot of stories about it, which I'll talk about on an upcoming episode, but it really hit home what people endured. There's Treblinka, Belzec, Sobibor, Grossrosen and Plashov, which is depicted in Schindler's List, which is the concentration camp that Ray Fiennes' horrible character that he plays overseas. I have a really sobering graphic that I'll put up on the website um, and also on the Patreon of just the Holocaust in occupied Poland and just how many ghettos there were, concentration and extermination camps, um, and how obviously difficult it was for Polish Jews. Approximately 6 million Polish citizens, including 3 million Polish Jews, perished during the course of the war and it went from having one of the largest Jewish populations in the world and in Europe to having one of the smallest. When I went to Krakow we went through the Jewish quarter which is called Kazimierz and I had a private tour with another girl from my hostel by this really great young woman who took us all over the place. Um, I'll save it for another time. Um, But basically she took us through the Jewish quarter and told us about how it was just emptied out. It was this historic, beautiful quarter, Kazimierz, not far from the centre of Krakow. Um, And how today even there's just, you know, a couple left because it's really not what it was. The Warsaw Uprising was one of the most violent attempts at reclaiming their country um, in the whole of World War II and it ran from August to October 1944 and is also depicted in the incredible movie The Pianist which Adrian Brody won the Oscar for and of which is the inspiration for an episode I have planned and of which the book is amazing and you should buy it um, and the movie. During this uprising in Warsaw, at the tail end of the war, when they knew the end was nigh for the Germans, Poles tried to basically reclaim control of the city of Warsaw over the Nazis um, before it was occupied by the Soviet army that was fast advancing and entered Poland not long after that and ultimately liberated concentration camps such as Auschwitz-Birkenau. Ultimately, the uprising failed um, and it gave way to the Soviet army coming in and establishing a Soviet administration, which when I was in Hungary and Poland, people told me it was worse than living under the Nazis, Um, a tour that I did of a place called the House of Terror in Budapest with a survivor 
said that living under the Russians was worse than living under the Nazis. So these people endured just decades of torture. Um, ultimately, it did fail and Hitler ordered that Warsaw be absolutely razed to the ground in retaliation. And as a result, Warsaw was one of the worst decimated cities by bombing across Europe. It had to be rebuilt from scratch. When I was in Krakow, they told us on this private tour that I did, the girl told us that um, Hitler asked that Krakow be kind of, they avoid bombing it um, because it was such a beautiful cultured city, which it really is. And I guess that harkens back to as much as they were monsters, the Nazis were renowned for having good taste in uh, architecture and art, um, which I have quite a lot of episodes planned about those very things. Ultimately, after the war, Warsaw was rebuilt and it was rebuilt based on portraits of what it looked like in the 14th century. So it wasn't rebuilt in its old town in particular to a modern style um, that was more in line with the 1950s or 60s. It was rebuilt to this really beautiful, you know, classic style. Following the war and the liberation, quote unquote, of Poland by the Russians, as patron Eva, who requested Poland for this episode, would remember, Poland became part of the Eastern Bloc and was known as the Polish People's Republic. Officially a socialist republic between 1952 and 1989, Poland was ruled by a communist government after the Red Army's invasion. Contrary to popular belief, it was never part of the Soviet Union, but it was considered a quote-unquote satellite state of the Soviet Union. While there were perks to living under a socialist-slash-communist regime, like literacy improving and the rebuilding of decimated cities like Warsaw, as we discussed on the Alexei Navalny Locked Up Abroad episode in Russia, a life under communism isn't what universities are instilling in many students these days. It's not a life that you want, which is hence why ever use the term escaped communist Poland. People don't, people don't voluntarily move to communist countries, they move away from them. When the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, people's lives changed, but people had lived decades or sometimes their entire lives with no knowledge of life without a Soviet-style surveillance system. And I think this is really beautifully presented in the show Chernobyl. Um, that's one of the things that I kind of immediately think of, Jared, Jared Harris sitting in his apartment in Chernobyl with them parked outside, you know, listening and all of the browns that are synonymous with communism. I found a great article titled, quote, I was 10 when communism fell in Poland. My world became colourful but unstable, unquote. I remember on the Russia episode for Alexei Navalny, I read a very similar article written by someone who lived under, um, you know, communism in until 1989 in Russia. But this particular one, I loved how this article really showed how as this person whose name is Slavomir Sierakowski said as a child all of a sudden these changes were happening so quickly around 1989 as most people who have lived under communism at some point write about which I'm sure ever would remember very clearly cues define a life under communism lining up constantly for things and I'm going to read you a little bit of Slavomir's piece Quote, 
The first free elections 30 years ago on the 4th of June 1989 marked a great victory for the solidarity movement. Suddenly everything accelerated. Everything became colourful and exotic. The omnipresent kitsch did not bother anyone. The first bazaars and the first entrepreneurial startups had already appeared. For the first time in my life, I saw bananas. I so desperately wanted one that I burst into tears when my mother said it cost a fortune and she didn't have the money. She eventually gave in. Suddenly there were colourful key rings, turbo gum with pictures of cars on the wrappers, the German language magazine Bravo. Before, we had only known the packaging of such Western luxuries. Under communism, apartments were all identical. There was only one kind of everything. Furniture, kefir, yoghurt, and there were no brands. People used empty cans with the beautiful logos of Pepsi or 7-Up as decorative objects lined up next to each other. After 1989, they appeared with their contents, but they were damn expensive. Warsaw's first McDonald's became the fanciest place in the city. After 1989, reality swiftly became dramatic also. The life I experienced was fairly typical of transformation-era society. My mother worked as a middle manager in a large light bulb factory in Warsaw, named after Rosa Luxemburg. We lived in a 38-square-metre apartment. This was not the social sphere of the opposition, which primarily belonged to the intelligentsia. She quickly came to fear that she would lose her job, that the factory would be privatised and that 8,000 people would become unemployed. Indeed, 3 million people in Poland lost their jobs in just a few years. The finance minister, Leszek Belserowicz, <laughs> introduced a nationwide shock therapy that was aimed primarily at large enterprises. With the opening of the market and the inflow of Western goods, the country's outdated factories collapsed. Today, there is no trace of the massive factory where my mother once worked. Even the buildings have been demolished, unquote. So it kind of, I'll, I'll link it on the website, but the article really depicts the move from communism into capitalism and the shock for a lot of people of that. People did not travel to Poland in particular for tourism until the 2000s. My parents always refer to going to Yugoslavia. They never went to the Czech Republic or Poland or Hungary. Those were all behind, you know, they were all Soviet satellite countries. Um, my parents still call Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia, instead of Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia, things like that. Um, I think certain people of a certain age um, just don't don't change their language. They still call it Czechoslovakia as well. Today, Poland has a really impressive 16 World Heritage Sites, among them the biggest castle in the world, Molborg. Some famous Poles, although controversial, include Roman Polanski, Marie Curie, who many people think is French, but I think she was just married to a French guy. She's actually Polish. Um, and the composer Chopin, <clears throat> who I was listening to earlier because I was watching The Pianist again for about probably the 50th time. I actually went to Chopin's grave in Paris. So until a few years ago, I thought he was French, but it turns out he's Polish, which it makes more sense why Adrian Brody plays the piano um, for you know, the Nazi at the end, he plays a Polish composer's work. But for the death of Max Spears, we are going to Warsaw, the capital of Poland. Warsaw is home to the president of Poland, and it sits in the east central part of Poland on the River Vistula. 
It's home to 3 million residents and it's probably the second most visited Polish city behind Krakow for tourists. 80 years on from its decimation during the Second World War, Warsaw is now a buzzing, cultured city with a historic UNESCO-listed old town, but a contemporary cityscape as well as a booming economy. A lot of people I know a lot of people I know um, who including listeners who live in other parts of Europe, a lot of them claim to want to move to Poland for opportunity and freedom. Um, and looking at why Poland is the way they are is really impressive. They have economically withstood the last 18 months without tourists for the most part, including, you know, not having as many lockdowns as other parts in the world. Um, even before COVID, they, their economy was incredibly stable, um, which is kind of incredible when you compare it to its neighbours like Germany, um, that Poland has a more stable economy than them. Poland recently became the first country to sue Facebook for prohibiting freedom of speech. Draft laws are currently going through parliament that make it illegal for Mark the Cyborg Zuckerberg and his mates to restrict people's social media views, which is amazing. If this all sounds good to you and you want to move to Poland, like many expats or many people, including myself, it's easier to move there than other European countries. I write quite a lot for my work about visas um, and, you know, for my travel work that I do. Um, and their visa system is way more straightforward than many other European countries and make it possible for non-EU expats to move to Poland. Non-EU residents need to apply for short-term residency and a work permit to be able to move there. Today, on the day that I'm recording this, the early hours of the 8th of October in Melbourne, Warsaw, over on the other side of the world, is a balmy 17 degrees, which made me laugh because Melbourne is too. (laughs) And we are barely out of winter and Poland is barely out of summer. When I went, it was snowy and icy and like minus 20 and I'd never experienced weather like it. But Max Spears is who we're talking about. And when Max Spears died in Warsaw, Poland on July 16th, 2016, I looked up the historic records and found that it was a mild 22 degrees in this very progressive Polish city. So back to Max. I just realized that this has been going for an hour and we haven't even talked about his death, but that's why I want to kind of load you guys up with information about places and build up to things. So According to the FamiliesChange.org petition, which is still online, just days before Max died when he was staying at Monica's in Warsaw, he texted his mum back in Canterbury and he wrote to her, quote, your boy's in trouble. If anything happens to me, investigate. Now, I haven't seen this text. I haven't seen any screen grabs of this text. We're just going off what his mum says. In one of his final social media messages that he wrote to a friend who had written to him asking how he was, he replied, quote, I'm good. I'm just way too tired with about six whys. Now, going back to that final interview four days before he died, um, I think that's an understatement in terms of Max being way too tired. He went silent after that text to his mum Um, And she didn't hear from him again until she heard word from Warsaw that her son had died on the couch of a relatively new friend of his. Around this time, Sarah, who is the ex-fiancé back in the UK, she stated to the Daily Mail um, that she had kind of had sporadic contact with Max and that he said, quote, he was terrified he wanted to leave. He rang secretly as they wouldn't let him talk. 
he said they were trying to get away he said they were trying to get away from them and that's not a typo that's what she's written now I don't know if I believe um, a lot of what some people in this story say um, that's all I'm saying and if it did happen um, I think there's reasons why Max was behaving the way he was so around this time that he last spoke to Sarah and his mum, he did that interview that I played you clips from where he does not sound good. A later inquest back in the UK would hear primary evidence from Monica um, as to how she found Max on July 16th, 2016. Now, I looked everywhere for this inquest in Australia. They're just on the internet. They're public, a public record, but I couldn't get access to the Max Spears inquest online. I believe that it's not digitised, which is strange for, you know, 2016. Um, I think you just have to kind of apply and wait for them to send it, um, which I just didn't, you know, have the time for. Luckily, a lot of it is referred to, you know, by the media. So Monica told the inquest in the UK, which happened, it wrapped up in 2019, that Max Spears had taken the Xanax that he and Monica had picked up in Cyprus, taken it back to Poland, which there's got to be some sort of law about how much you can import to a new country, but, you know, probably just put it throughout his luggage and no one looked, um, that she said that he'd taken the Xanax on the day he died. Now, what they were selling in Cyprus was a Turkish form of Xanax that I believe was in Turkish, the instructions. Um, Max did not know that it was probably a different dose because it was in a different language. Now, the Polish prosecutor said after Max's death um, that he probably, quote, took 10 tablets of Turkish Xanax at the same time, explaining to Mrs. Deval that it was an adequate dose because its Turkish equivalent has a different dosage, unquote. So that's what she told the Polish prosecutors and police that Max had said to her about it. Now, how Max would know that, I don't think Max strikes me as someone who speaks Turkish. Um, maybe he just thought, I don't, I honestly don't know. I'm interested to know what you guys think. Now, later autopsy findings would state that Max, around the time that he died or on the day he died, would have pneumonia at the same time. So we're going to talk a little bit about pneumonia because pneumonia still exists and people get it all the time. Um, and thousands of people die every year from pneumonia um, in each country, a huge amount in the States in particular. Quote, oh, this is according to Medical News Today, quote, pneumonia is an infection of the lungs with a range of possible causes. It can be a serious and life-threatening disease. It normally starts with a bacterial, viral or fungal infection. The lungs become inflamed and the tiny air sacs or alveoli inside the lungs fill with fluid. Pneumonia can occur in young and healthy people, but it's also dangerous for older adults, infants, people with other diseases and those with impaired immune systems. In the United States, around 1 million people are treated in the hospital for pneumonia each year and around 50,000 die from the disease. Symptoms of pneumonia include... The first symptoms of pneumonia usually resemble those of a cold and flu. The person then develops a high fever, chills and cough with, is it sputum, like phlegm? Common symptoms include cough, rusty or green phlegm, coughed up from lungs. So rusty means like kind of orangey. 
Fever, fast breathing, shortness of breath, shaking chills, chest pain that usually worsens when taking a deep breath, known as pleuritic pain, fast heartbeat, fatigue and weakness, nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, sweating, headache, muscle pain, confusion or delirium, especially in older adults, dusky or purplish skin colour or cyanosis from poorly oxygenated blood. So, I'm just trying to paint a picture for you of the state that Max was in. He had pneumonia at the time, so he was getting sick. You can probably actually tell that, like he's got something in his throat in that final interview a few days before he died. Now we're adding on top of that Xanax, which is a benzodiazepine. Um, And this is not a good idea. Now, later on, autopsies would also find that he had oxycodone in his system. Now, all of this, which very much reminded me of Heath Ledger's story, is a recipe for disaster. Um whether or not Heath Ledger knew he was taking an overdose, I don't know. But in Max's case, um, I think he was on the road to death a few days before he died. So just to give you an idea of what being on benzos just on their own without adding oxycodone to it can do to you when you've already got breathing problems, I'm going to read you this quote from Science Daily, quote, benzodiazepines such as Ativan or Xanax can actually contribute to a respiratory problems such as depressing breathing ability and pneumonia in these patients, unquote. So your body's already having issues breathing because, you know, like I said, in pneumonia, those tiny sacs in your lungs fill with fluid. So it literally feels like you're drowning in your own fluid. Add on top of that benzos, which are depressing your system. um, And you can already see where this is going. So Monica Duvall, who found Max when he died, She said that they were at her place in Warsaw and that he had taken the Xanax, that he'd fallen asleep on her sofa after taking the Xanax, a huge amount of Xanax. Um, And then she said that a few hours later, she noticed that he had stopped breathing. She said that he then began to vomit as she tried to resuscitate him as she called for paramedics. Um, the BBC also mentions that Monica's daughter was also there. I don't know how old she is, but I hope she wasn't witnessing it and she was like a small child or anything. Now, as I said, she called emergency services straight away. Um, and that's when Max began to vomit. Now, this always writes headlines for people because the headlines are always really out of control, really sensational and say that he coughed up what seemed like two two um liters of black fluid now the way that these clickbaity headlines make it sound like is that he threw up what was the equivalent of black oil but that's not the case and that's not what monica said and i'm going to refer to the inquest to tell you what she said quote i noticed he had something in his mouth some remnants of food so i turned him on one side and saw gastric fluids pouring out of him brown liquid like something tea colored unquote So you can see how things get out of control when you're not referring to the sources, which is why I always refer to actual sources, because that's not what she said, black liquid. But all of a sudden it becomes black liquid, you know, with people telling the story online. So she said it's brown liquid, kind of like tea coloured. So almost like, it depends on what kind of tea really, that's the whole thing, but probably like a, almost like a dark red. So I'm just going to kind of read to you a few reasons why you can cough up black or brown vomit in particular if that's what it was it could also be what he was coughing up was like phlegm but it sounds like he actually vomited like a liter of fluid 
Black or brown vomit may mean that you are bleeding internally. It is also called coffee ground vomitus. The partially digested blood looks like coffee grounds and is caused by bleeding in your gastrointestinal or GI tract. Dark vomit often comes from bleeding in the stomach. And according to InfoBloom, quote, some reasons for bleeds can include prolonged vomiting leading to tears in the esophagus, tumours, kidney disease, alcoholism, a ruptured ulcer, internal trauma, hemorrhagic, I hate that word, diseases like yellow fever. Certain medications can also contribute to the development of bleeds, especially combined with other drugs or used with herbal supplements, unquote. Now, as I said, Max had taken benzos, opiates, and he had pneumonia. So I'm just trying to like kind of give you a scientific explanation before we start getting into crazy things that people say. Pneumonia, as Max was known to have, is also a reason for discolored vomit. It can often result in brown phlegm or vomit, you know, as I said. Vanessa, on the night that Max died, Vanessa spoke to Monica from, you know, across in the UK. And Vanessa said that she could hear people at Monica's place, but the emergency team and the doctors had since left. But they had left Max's body behind until the next morning. I don't know exactly what time Max died. I think it was in the evening. They didn't come and collect him until like 11 o'clock the following morning, which I find very strange just to leave his body there. According to Vanessa on BBC Stories, the friends that were in the house, she could hear them all in the background. She didn't know who they were. For all she knew, Monica was just supposed to be the one there. She said that they were like trying to bring Max back from the dead for hours. He's like dead body on the couch. She said they were using like cups of milk and cups of vinegar and shit like that to kind of cast spells. Max was left in Monica's house overnight, finally removed by emergency services at 11 the following day, which I'd really love to know more about that because that doesn't seem right. Max's body was returned to the UK six days after his death. We have discussed on previous episodes how autopsies have to be repeated in the UK if they die in a foreign country. We talked about that on, um, what's it, was it Miguel? Um, I think he's Angel Ramirez or Martinez, the guy who died in Sweden, the Spanish guy, but wanted to be buried in the UK especially returning them to the UK, there has to be a whole new autopsy take place on Europe, you know, on British soil. So by this stage, when he was returned to the UK, Max's body was so far decomposed, according to his mum, Vanessa, that nobody was advised to see him. The authorities said, don't look at him because it will really disturb you, which I understand because I don't, you know, if you've ever seen a decomposing body or a dead body that's been dead for quite a while, um, it's really shocking. But at the same time, we are animals and we are meat and that's the body breaking down. Max's sister, according to his mum, did look at Max's body and was really upset by it. Vanessa says that the sister said that his face was like super dark, like almost black and unrecognisable, which is, you know, what happens when you decompose. BBC stories were shown photos by Max's mum of his dead body um, from the autopsy. We haven't seen them. They haven't been publicly produced, but apparently, according to BBC stories, on his forehead is a large, quote, strange dark mark about the size of a thumb. And BBC stories describe it as looking a bit like a blood blister. And that's never been, 
explained. And in the emergency services notes from Warsaw, when they arrived there to try to resuscitate him, there's no mention of this in any of the notes from the time that he was dead to when they picked up his body to when they returned it to the UK. Nobody in Poland referred to this mark on his head, which is again reminiscent of the Spanish guy who died in Sweden. There was heaps of stuff missing from his report and marks on his face that never made it onto autopsy. It's very strange. And you've got to wonder whether or not people are being... Coroners have too much to do. I've read that the average coroner is way, you know, um, slammed with work and that they're doing way too many autopsies, you know, um, than they should be doing for... to be thorough. Um, And I think that's probably happening, you know, across the world because there's so few people that are are skilled to be able to do that. The later coroner's inquest in England that wrapped up in 2019 actually lashes out at the Polish authorities for the entire way they handled the investigation into Max's death. Coroner Christopher Sutton Maddox said, quote, Max was a conspiracy theorist and a well-known one at that. If there was anything that was bound to excite the interests of other conspiracy theories, it was the wholly incompetent initial investigation into his death, which, spot on. A post-mortem examination also found, as I said, that he had deadly levels of the opioid oxycodone in his system on top of the Xanax and the pneumonia. Oxycodone and, you know, which is in Oxycontin, um, it's also in Percocet. It is, I think everyone knows someone or knows someone who knows someone who has died from this. It is a serious epidemic across the world, the abuse of these. If you don't know what oxycodone is, according to Medline Plus, quote, oxycodone is a semi-synthetic opioid analgesic derived from Thibane in Germany in 1917. It is currently indicated as an immediate release product for moderate to severe pain and as an extended release product for chronic moderate to severe pain requiring continuous opioid analgesics for an extended period. It is highly addictive, unquote. Oxycodone and Oxycontin and Percocet and things like that are for people who have like end-stage cancer to kill their pain. Um, it's But now, because of how easily doctors have handed it out, um, pretty much everyone's taking it, even if they're not in pain. And I say this as someone who knows someone who was killed by Oxycontin when I was 18, um, which I'm not really going to talk about, but she was one of my friends at school um, and she had a massive heart attack. So that's how it affects your body in a very short amount of time. Mr. Sutton Maddox, the coroner, said that between the pneumonia and the drugs, it had, quote, caused aspiration of gastric contents, unquote. So aspiration is basically like breathing in something. Um, so he was basically choking on stuff that was in his stomach In addition, it doesn't take a genius to understand that the reality of mixing drugs such as opiates and benzos plus being sick will probably result in either death or you'll be in a very bad way. Here are some facts. According to the British Medical Journal, quote, the British Medical Journal study found that of 2,400 veterans in the study's population who died because of a drug overdose while taking opioid painkiller prescriptions, 49% had been concurrently prescribed benzodiazepines. Here are some more. Quote, mixing opioids and benzodiazepines is incredibly dangerous. 
so much that the FDA has cautioned physicians and patients about mixing the two. The F- FDA stated that healthcare professionals should limit prescribing opioid pain medicines with benzodiazepines or other CNS depressants only to patients for whom alternative treatment options are inadequate. The FB- FDA went on to say that, quote, patients taking opioids with benzodiazepines other CNS depressant medicines or alcohol and caregivers of these patients should seek medical attention immediately if they or someone they're caring for experiences symptoms of unusual dizziness or lightheadedness, extreme sleepiness, slowed or difficult breathing or unresponsiveness, which seems Max literally says that four days before he dies. In other words, mixing benzos and opioids increases this risk of overdose and death. In 2015, just using statistics from the US because they're the easiest to get, there were 6,872 overdose deaths from benzos and 5,826 of those involved opioids. After his death in Poland, Monica stopped communicating with his family, which I do understand. She was probably getting harassment from people who were interested in Max from the internet and she just wanted to not involve herself because who knows if it's illegal to bring in that amount of Xanax in from Cyprus to Poland. But I hate to say it, but I understand why she wouldn't communicate with people because you got to leave a paper trail of what you're saying. <laughs> um, BBC Stories tried to track her down in Warsaw and went to her house, but they couldn't get onto her. But she d- she was cooperating with the Polish prosecutor, however, and there were no charges brought against her. Max was almost 40. You know, he was a big boy and he made his decisions. Max's suitcase and belongings were returned to his family with his body. But one of the things that people really latch onto, which, you know me, I'm always going to blame people sucking at their job over being dodgy, His phone and laptop were not with his belongings. And then a few weeks later, they were finally sent after the family demanded to know where they were. And there was no SIM card in the phone. And Max's laptop had been basically formatted to factory settings and wiped of everything. And this is all true. And his mum talks about it with BBC Stories. But again, I am always going to err on the side of people being dumbasses and losing things. And that seems to line up with everything else in this case. Max had serious addiction problems. And one of the things that really made me sad about this, I know you guys thought that I was going to (laughs) say that he was killed, you know, there was a conspiracy. I think the conspiracy was against Max from his immediate circle. And what I mean by that was his fans, people who watched him on the internet, everyone pretty much except his mum seemingly were not helping him with a very real, tangible addiction problem that isn't caused by demons latched onto you like I was told I had on my fucking body once by an ex-boyfriend. And it wasn't caused by having his brain removed and fucking washed when he was five years old. It was caused by substance abuse issues. And watching those interviews with Max around the same age as my one of my brothers is now is like watching my brother and how he talks, Um, not being able to follow what he says. I've had so many conversations directed at me with that exact um, content, (laughs) aliens, um, lucid dreaming type stuff, 
crazy shit. Um, unfortunately, it makes me very sad, especially with people like Miles, who was interviewed, that every step of the way in that BBC stories, this is where I'm going to agree with the BBC, every step of the way when they're presented with evidence that he was suffering and needed help from people around him, who he called friends, the people around him, except for his mum, Vanessa, make excuses and kind of hold him up in such high regard. Oh, no, no, it's not drugs. He's experiencing, you know, he's um, remembering things that happened to him when he was abducted by aliens when he was four. I say this. (laughs) I had a funny memory when I was researching this. And (laughs) it's going to sound mad. And this isn't like I was... Barack Obama, you know, took me on a spaceship kind of shit, like what Max was saying. When I lived in England, I my boyfriend at the time was quite a religious person. I'm not going to say anything else about that. And I had very bad <clears throat> IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome. My brother has Crohn's disease um, and I have had flare-ups throughout my whole life, which they actually think now is resulting from my Graves disease. But I had symptoms that were so bad I thought that I had like an internal cancer and I'm talking like pooing blood and things like that. (laughs) So I was very controlled with what I ate to the point where I lost 33 kilos, which is like 50 pounds. And I was like a skeleton and I was constantly in pain. I was constantly fearful of going to someone's house because I was scared, which is still a thing that I, I live with of going to the toilet at someone's house. And I always have to know where the toilet is and things like that. And one night I was staying at my boyfriend's who, good luck to him. He's married now. He's got kids. You know, I've got this podcast. Cheers, you guys. Um, I don't speak to him. I woke up and I've never ever experienced anything like it. I woke up like I was being stabbed in my bowel, which is kind of symptoms that my brother had when we were teenagers, when he was first diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And his is very progressed now and we're both fucked in terms of our health and our parents probably hate us. But I woke up and I literally woke up going, I, I, and I was like screaming, crying. Even his flatmates woke up and came into the room. Anyway, long story short, I was saying call the ambulance because I was on a visa there and you're entitled to use the NHS because you pay natu- national insurance. And I had been in and out for a couple of months in and out of hospital. And because he was a very religious person, I don't want to bag him. And he's a really nice guy and he, he made me laugh, <laughs> but he he said, first, we've got to pray. We've got to pray. So for probably 10 minutes straight, because I was very in love with this person um, for a very long time, um, even after we broke up, I sat there and let him do that while I was literally on all fours on the ground, like shitting blood. <laughs> um, and ultimately, I ended up in the hospital um, and I just ongoing IBS. I never thought I'd tell this story. But I thought of that suddenly when I was researching Max Spears' case, because I was crying out for help and people were saying, well, my ex said that I had like demons attached to my body. That was his religious belief and he probably still believes that. And I'm sure a lot of people out there believe that. Um, But (laughs) Max Spears was like crying out for help as well. And everybody else around him wasn't doing anything about it. Um, Max Spears needed to be seen medically like I did. Um, and 
no one was helping him with this very tangible problem that you can diagnose what it is. Um, in a very similar kind of way, um, you know, they were like, no, no, nothing's wrong with him. And he's, you know, he's experiencing a fucking flashback to when he was three years old and, you know, he was on a fucking spaceship or whatever. And that made me like kind of think of me in that moment where Max probably didn't have the know-how or the energy to go, hang on a second, I need help because mentally when you've got something wrong with you, mentally you're not able to do that. I, w- I kind of thought of myself in the same position, like oh, I'll just let him fucking pray if that's what he thinks it is. You kind of put your you put your beliefs aside like something's very wrong with me because you care so much about what other people think. It's really hard for me to kind of articulate exactly exactly why I was like that. There's no way um, nine years on that I would ever let someone, you know, do that. But that was a physical thing and Max's, I believe, was mental. The BBC did speak to conspiracy theorists, quote unquote, who they found in Poland, um, which is very, you know, you're able to pick and choose when you're a quote unquote journalist who you speak to to discredit or put weight into a theory. Um, And that the people that they spoke to believed that Max was not a credible person in the world of paranormal stuff or, you know, the NWO or things that they talked about. The BBC also got hold of emails between Monica um, and Max's friends in Warsaw around just a couple of days before Max died. Um, they had emailed Monica and Max's friends in Warsaw, had emailed a guy who refers to himself as a quantum therapist Um, And basically they were writing in these emails to him that Max was a paranoid schizophrenic and addicted to medication. So if you understand kind of what I'm getting at, it seems that his friends knew that there was something mentally wrong, whether he's a paranoid schizophrenic. And I would love for Patreon and Marissa, who deals with neuroscience, who's pretty much an expert on schizophrenia, to tell me what she thinks um, or anybody else who suffers from it or knows it, whether or not there's elements of Max, you know, how he acted, whether or not that makes him a paranoid schizophrenic. I personally believe that there was something along the lines of that. And we have evidence from Monica and his friends in Warsaw that they're emailing a guy who prescribed vitamin B for Max's problems. Let that sink in. They were emailing saying that he is addicted to prescription medication and that he is a paranoid schizophrenic. And that's what makes me very sad um, because they refused to kind of believe what they were saying about Max, that he had mental problems and that all of his followers, you know, were misled or not really misled, but they were being led by a guy who didn't understand the distinction between reality and fantasy. Um, The current line in Poland and the UK is that Max died as a result of the drugs Xanax, oxycodone and pneumonia as well. A report from the Polish prosecutor's office stated um, that their report, quote, excluded the participation of further persons, unquote, meaning they're done with this. I do believe this. People who are young think they're invincible. um, And Max's story very much made me think of Heath Ledger's story down to having pneumonia, using a mixture of medications that you shouldn't mix. Um, Heath Ledger was 28. Max Spears was 39. Um, The wrong 
you're not you're not invincible your body can only process so much um down to his kind of death you know how he just laid down and and died um his final interviews were similar to Heath Ledger's how he was kind of slurring his words I didn't play those interviews with Max to make fun of him um that's why I didn't want to put in my own opinion early on um it just reminded me of many conversations that I've had with people um, who have substance abuse issues and who knows, maybe conversations people have had with me at pubs. <laughs> the opiates, oxycodone, oxycontin or sometimes Percocet and today fentanyl is incredibly addictive and people are really looking for that um, when it comes to prescription medication. They are so abused across the world it is really scary just how many people are hooked on prescription medications and it it is entirely the fault of the pharmaceutical industry and doctors just willy-nilly handing it out. I was reading a lot of studies um, about kind of whose fault it is and most of them fall on the pharmaceutical industries and doctors. It's so easy for them just to prescribe something that's not for something just to get someone off their books. <laughs> According to drugabuse.gov, in 2019, nearly 50,000 people in the United States died from opioid-involved overdoses. And if you remember how many people died in the States each year of pneumonia, it was also 50,000, so equally the same amount of people are dying from something that's totally avoidable. Roughly 21 to 29% of patients prescribed opioids for chronic pain misuse them. Between 8 and 12% of people using an opioid for chronic pain develop an opioid use disorder. An estimated 4 to 6% who misuse prescription opioids transition to heroin. About 80% of people who use heroin first misused prescription opioids. My friend Shelley, when I was in year 12, I moved to a new school because my mum moved a couple of hours away to the country and I moved too. Um, and Shelly was the first person that I met at, at school. Um, and she was a bit of a nutter. She was pretty funny. Um, she died six months into our final year of school at 18 from a massive Oxycontin overdose. She went to get a drink from her fridge and dropped dead in front of her fridge. And she was 18. She had a massive heart attack. My cousin died at Max Spears age 39 from abusing alcohol and drugs when he was living in New Orleans. My personal belief was that Max, like many people out there, whether they can, there's just no support system for them or they can't afford it, depending on where they live, that Max had unchecked mental illness, that unfortunately he was no, never going to get help for because he lived in an echo chamber of people who were egging him on. Videos online with titles like Max Spears' ritual killing, shit in the face of science and the current drug pandemic, and the millions who have lost their lives to these unnecessarily. I would love to hear your opinions or experiences. I'm losing my voice, sorry. Um, I would love to kind of hear what your experiences are. I know quite a lot of you have struggled with drug addictions, um, so I would love to kind of hear what your experience is in line with Max's experience. Um, I think it's pretty obvious where I stand. I stand on this. Well, I believe that there is some, there's always going to be some conspiracy against mankind in some way. Um, I don't think that's what it was this time. And who knows, I may get fucking hate mail from people who are really into this, but please remember that everyone has different opinions and that's what makes the world go round. 
be very boring if everyone had the same opinion. Can you imagine? It'd be like, oh, fuck. It'd be so fucking boring. Visit the website at unknownpassagepodcast.com. Become a patron. Links off the website or look for us on the Patreon app. Us. Me. Us. <laughs> us meaning me and my fucking my animals. Um, leave a rating or review if you like the show. Next week is something different. I have an interview with someone really interesting planned who has firsthand knowledge of what this whole podcast covers. Um, we're going to talk about a bunch of cases. I'm interviewing them in about a week. So the interview will be out in a little over a week. Um, this will be for patron Stephanie, technically. I'll kind of explain it then. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for becoming patrons. Thanks for your really nice reviews. Um, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.